Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Who Do Justice Magic. Binaural production engineer Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great. Monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. Monthly co-host Cat Baldwin, author of The Forgiveness Workshop. And sponsored by Ginger, tarotbyginger.com. And if you are interested in becoming a contributor to this show, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything you need there. Now, without further ado, our guest for today is Robert Sullivan IV, and he is an expert on the symbolism of Masonic ritual philosophy and also that symbolism as it appears in the cinema. Thanks for coming on again, Robert. Thanks, Gary, for having me on Everything Imaginable. It's my pleasure to be here. Awesome. So, um, has there been any significant symbolism showing up in any of the recent films that have come out? Yeah, absolutely. Um, some of the some of the movies I've seen of late, um, you know, that I would definitely say are worth checking out from, you know, even, you know, from an entertainment point, but also from a symbolic level. I mean, the bat, the new Batman movie, uh, just called the Batman, uh, really has a lot of interesting things going on in it. I, I very much enjoyed that. I thought it was a fantastic movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, three hours long, but well worth it. Um, I find, I mean, it's not new, a uh, new movies. Um, uh, uh, the, I saw the, the recent matrix movie. Um, that's okay. Um, the nightmare alley movie is okay. Um, unfortunately, Del Toro took out one of the most important parts of the original. Um, the, the, that movie's a remake. Uh, the, it's a pastiche. The mm-hmm. the um, the original, I think, is from 1947 with Tyron Power, and that's very good. Um, but but Del Toro removed one of the critical elements in it. I'm not sure why I did that. Um, and what's some of the other ones? Um, oh, I liked. Um, uh, the, the most recent Ghostbusters movies, uh, uh, Ghostbuster after, Ghostbusters Afterlife, uh, that has a lot going on it. That was a very good movie. I, I very much enjoyed that. And then it's they're not new, but I did finally get around because um, I am I am asked about them from time to time. Um, was is the um, the uh, Hunger Games films? Uh, that the well, there's three. Let's see, it was three books, but four right. movies. Um, I finally got around to watching all those. They, they were very good as well. So uh, I've got plenty to talk about for uh, Cinema Symbolism 4. Awesome. So what type of symbolism is showing up in these movies? And why is this symbolism even in these movies? Well, it's it's. I'll answer the second part of your question first. Is it 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 it, it invests the movies with a higher level of consciousness and a higher level of understanding when they're conveying um, different aspects, um, you know, or 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 different, you know, you know, it, it elevates the movie. I think on a, both a conscious and subconscious level. Um, so that's one reason why they do it. It's again, it augments mythology making. Um, if, if you just take a story and you turn it into this, you know, grandiose monomyth or this re- epic religious story or, or whatever with these undercurrents, whether they be alchemical or Gnostic or what have you, um, I, I think it elevates the movie and enhances it. Um, 
that's one reason. Um, well, I mean, like I said, we, you know, when I do these shows, I mean, each movie has to be looked at um, individually. Um, there, there's really no uniformity with this. You take one movie as it comes and you take another movie as it comes. I mean, of course there's overlap, but uh, like for instance, the, the one the, the one that I just mentioned, the Batman movie mm-hmm. um, with uh, Robert Pattinson and uh, who all was in that Zoe Kravitz and uh, the, the most recent one that, that has a very deep uh, religious uh, under vibe, you know, undercurrent to it. Uh, gives off a lot of re- religious vibes. Some of it's very on the surface. Um, some of it isn't. I mean, when, when you when you watch the movie, I mean, you're constantly in these cathedral-like uh, settings. I mean, even in Wayne Manor, it's it's this like gothic cathedral this guy's living in. Mm-hmm. So there there was this very deep um, religious undercurrent, uh, Christian, you know, apocalyptic undercurrent with with the Batman, which I very much enjoyed. Again, that was a great film. Um, some movies. Uh, play on other movies uh, to, to convey something that's, you know, sort of this art of memory uh, technique, uh, the Ghostbusters movie. Uh, this is Ghostbusters Af- Afterlife um, reinvents the Wizard of Oz. Uh, there's a, there's a very um, esoteric Wizard of Oz theme going on in, in Ghostbusters Afterlife with this idea of the outsider as a hero. Uh, one of the tip offs to this is the little girl, uh, Phoebe played by McKenna Grace. Uh, she wears the red shoes throughout. Of course, this is an uh, alluding to uh, Dorothy's red slippers from the mm-hmm. Wizard of Oz. So uh, that was something I very much enjoyed. Also, um, so again, it's it's each movie has to be taken on an individual uh, basis, take them as they come, and uh, then dissect them forthwith. Uh, there, some movies have different undercurrents. Some movies have none whatsoever. Um, of course, there is always overlap. But when I when I analyze a film, I just take each movie uh individualistic you know i just look at each in each movie individually and take it from there interesting so the the symbolism that is in there to enhance the movies how about the movie makers themselves are they part of some type of nefarious secret organization that is putting this symbolism in as a way of mind control or trying to influence an agenda in the public to create a new world order. They're just using this to control people's minds to sway them into something like that. Right. I mean, you know, is it a form of mind control? Um, <clears throat> you could maybe use the word mind manipulation um, to an extent. Um, I mean, certainly there are different techniques that are used to leave an impression. Uh, whether it's positive or negative is debatable. I've, I've never found any evidence that, I mean, I, I'll be the first to admit that Freemasons founded Hollywood, but I, I, I mean, when you're talking about modern movies, I mean, there are many movies that are made, um, by people who are non Freemasons and not, you know, directors and producers that are non Masons. So to suggest that they're part of some sort of secret agenda, um, I find that a little difficult to swallow. I mean, I'm always willing to keep an open mind. I mean, there are some very strange anomalies going on in film. Um, and I certainly put that out there when I see it, but, um, you know, I, I've never, I've never really felt like, oh, there's, you know, a group of Hollywood directors sitting around saying, oh, let's put this in a movie or let's do this or let's do that. Um, you know, I, I've, I've, I've never really found that to be the case. Uh, a lot of these esoteric themes, uh, that you find in film, um, not all of them, of course, but a lot of them, um, you know, such as like artificial intelligence and things like that. Um, a lot of these are can be found in Christian doctrine, um, things like that, such as uh, um, 
you know, uh, Kabbalistic golems and, uh, and uh, hermetic statues and, and the creation, you know, the animation of life. Um, you can actually find this in, in the world of Christian and Jewish mysticism. So it's, it's not inherently evil or anything like that. Um, I, I've never, I've never, um, you know, really thought that, you know, there was some sort of secret cabal putting this together. Um, you have some filmmakers certainly that are more sophisticated than others who really understand this material and have a better handle on it than others. Um, you always have to allow for um, the collective unconscious at play um, that, you know, and archetypes and things of that sort, you know, coming into film and, and, and coming into storytelling um, that always has to be allowed for. Um, and, you know, when you break it down, you really are looking at um, a lot of, you know, what I, I would describe as sort of art of memory techniques, um, mem memory theaters, archetypal theaters, you know, or, 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 or dramas put on with archetypes. Um, and when you, when you're dabbling in this world, um, you know, it, it does, you know, when, when you're dealing with the generation of archetypes and, and, and things like that, um, you know, you read, you read the rent, you know, the works of some of these Renaissance masters, such as, you know, Giordano Bruno, things like that, you know, people like that. Um, you definitely are dabbling in the occult, um, you know, the occult hermetic world. Um, so it is controversial to an extent, um, but at least it's, it is very interesting to say the least. That's uh, irrefutable. Are there like which filmmakers are the best or put in the most symbolism in their movies? Right. That's a very good question. Um, well, certainly the new Batman movie with Matt Reeves has a lot going on in it. Um, some of the other filmmakers that I've been very impressed with, uh, Stanley Kubrick, for one, Darren Aronofsky, uh, certainly people like Lucas Spielberg, Zemeckis, um, Ari Aster, you most certainly can add into that mix. Um, of course, Roman Polanski, Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, my goodness. David Lynch. Um, those off the top of my head are some of the real experts. Um you know, when it comes to, you know, occult cinema, occult movie making, um, using these techniques to um, convey different messages. I, I don't I, I, I really do back off the term mind control, but I will go so far as to say manipulation um, that 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 I do think is going on to an extent. But what I kind of what, what I like to do in my books is just present the information and I sort of leave it to the reader to decide whether to decide whether it's positive or nefarious. Um, I just I kind of treat it as I would a lawyer. I, I, I sort of view the reader as a jury and I just present the information as best I could objective uh, objectively and let the reader make up his or her own mind. Hmm. Since the last time I've talked to you, I interviewed um, Tessa Dick. She is the wife of Philip Dick. You know, sure. And, and he had very, um, it was scared darkly. I think of he course. had some influence on, um, um, Blade Runner, Blade Total R Recall. Yep. Those are all, uh, Philip K. Dick. Yeah. Um, so, so, and he, I mean, obviously a lot of his work was not just influenced, I think, by mythology, but they're almost prophetic in a way. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, Philip K. Dick, I mean, you know, you're dealing with sort of a, a modern day Sethian Gnostic, uh, you know, salt conspiracy everywhere was always, uh, you know, you know, interest, in, interested in, um, yeah, I mean, absolutely trying to, you know, be prophetic, uh, seeing the future, transhumanism, robotics. Um, I mean, absolutely, you know, I mean, I mean, he, he is definitely, um, you know, you know, can easily be categorized into a Gnostic 
writer. I mean, he, he presents in his stories, you know, what's real, what's not, what's reality, what's a false reality. Um, certainly you find that theme in, in films like Total Recall mm -hmm. with Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's a, that was based on a, uh, Philip K. Dick novella. Um, um, the other one, um, another one is Existenz. Uh, Cronenberg, I believe that that is loosely based on a uh, Philip K. Dick story. Um, that that one really incorporates a lot of the um, Gnostic beliefs of a mystical Christian named Basilides. Um, you you find a lot of his theology, his heresies in in uh, in, uh, in existence, and of course Blade Runner. Um, do what is it? Do androids dream of electric sheep? Uh, was the uh, story that Blade Runner was based upon. And again, with that one, you're dealing with, I mean, my goodness gracious, Kabbalistic golems, hermetic statues. Um, you know, I mean, you know, William ba uh, Roy Batty even winds up quoting uh, uh, William Blake or misquotes him from America of Prophecy. So, yeah, I mean, when, when you're dealing with the works of Philip K. Dick, I mean, you know, it's it's really this deep Gnostic strain. And it, and it sort of reflects, at least in my opinion, the, you know, the, the one branch of Gnosticism, the Sethians, um, they were paranoics. Uh, they saw conspiracy everywhere. And I would definitely say Philip K. Dick, you know, would, would, would sort of be what you could call a modern day Sethian, as it were. Hmm. Interesting. Um, like, I know after talking to his wife, um, I mean, there seemed to be, for him, there was seemed to be consequences for putting that material out. Are you aware of any other filmmakers or writers that have had to suffer consequences of putting this stuff out that really should not have gone out into the public? Yeah, I mean, um, it, 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 you know, it's certainly debatable. Um, you know, the, I guess the one that, that's always the smoking gun that people point to with this, <coughs> excuse me, is Stanley Kubrick, uh, who, of course, died immediately after Eyes Wide Shut was released. And, you know, the, the theory on that one was that he was, you know, killed, you know, in, um, you know, for, 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 for uh, you know, putting Eyes Wide Shut out, which if you've ever seen that movie, of course, yes, exposes what, mm -hmm. you know, what you would call the Illuminati, um, certainly a, a malevolent secret society that's working behind the scenes to pull the strings, as it were. Um, of course, this has never been proven, um, but you know, it's alleged and it is, it is somewhat mysterious. On, on the other hand, I could make a counter argument. Um, you know, the movie did come out. Um, I mean, you can watch it. I mean, you certainly can get it on Blu-ray or DVD. Um, so it wasn't like he was murdered and then the movie was scrapped or something like that. I mean, the movie does come out. It is released. And, you know, some people do speculate that he was murdered, um, because of it, that he was maybe showing too much. Of course, there's all sorts of, uh, stories around Kubrick that he worked for the government, specifically NASA. Um, you know, may have staged the moon landing footage. Um, there is evidence, strong evidence to suggest this is the case. Um, a lot of people are not aware of this, but Kubrick used NASA technology to film uh, the movie he made before The Shining called Barry Lyndon. Um, the, the camera lenses that he used to make Barry Lyndon um, came straight from NASA. So he clearly had a connection um, connection with them. Um, and of course, this strengthens the argument that he was somehow working for them or at least with them in, uh, you know, staging this moon landing footage. It's not to say they didn't go. It was just to say they couldn't film there. And so they retained Kubrick's services to um, 
to, to film the guys jumping around in the you know, soundstage. Um, another, another interesting um, example of this, and it's not a director, um, but, but you, you read the histories of this and, and you read people like Frances Yates and she talks about it. She's as mainstream as you get is uh, it's not a filmmaker. We got to go back in time a little bit is of course, uh, Christopher Marlowe, uh, the playwright, um, she suggests that she, he was killed, um, murdered by the uh, by agents of the Elizabethan court, specifically by you know Walsingham, the Queen herself, and John Dee, because uh, he was his plays are promoting the Counter Reformation, Jesuitism. Uh, Dr. Faustus is an attack on John Dee. Um, uh, the uh, the Jew of Malta is an attack on Queen Elizabeth's. Um, physician, a guy by the name of Rodrigo Lopez, and Tamerlane is a direct assault on Queen Elizabeth herself. And of course, Marlowe, I think, was mysteriously murdered in a bar fight um, at the age of 27, 28. Um, and it is widely speculated in English history, especially when you get into people who know um, that he was murdered at, at the behest of Queen Elizabeth by Elizabethan agents, mm-hmm. uh, John D. Walsingham. So that's probably a more concrete one. Um, of course, we're going way back in time for that. But yeah, I mean, certainly um, Philip K. Dick, uh, Stanley Kubrick, um, those names uh, definitely come to mind. Interesting. You know, I mean, that's one of the reasons why they say that, that Shakespeare wrote under a pen name, that he was actually an insider of, um, you know, Queen Elizabeth's court and knew John Dee and those people also. Of course. Of course. Well, I mean, the thing with the thing with Shakespeare that makes this so interesting is Shakespeare um, counteracts all of Marlowe. Um, you know, you have the Jesuit propaganda by Marlowe, and then you have Shakespeare, who is likely Sir Francis Bacon, um, or at least, you know, him maybe and some other people. Um, I mean, because in the Shakespeare's play, I mean, we could do a whole episode on this. I mean, you have John Dee turning up as Prince Prospero. Uh, you have John Dee and King Lear uh, mm-hmm. referenced um, in Love Labor's Lost. Giordano Bruner turns up as Barone, um, who is always lusting after the dark-skinned Rosaline. Uh, this is a reference to Albert Dewar um, and Melancholia and the planet Saturn and the cult of chastity uh, that pervaded the Elizabethan court. Um, of course, you have the Romeo and Juliet, the two families, the Capulets and the Montagues mm-hmm. are the Medici and the Patsies in, in Florence, Italy. Um, so you have, and then Hamlet, I mean, there's one of your first probably Gnostic uh, pieces of pop culture ever written. So, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the works of Shakespeare really, um, you know, you know, sort of counteract Marlowe. I mean, and, and again, you're dealing with the occult. Um, I mean, the, the, the characters are in, in, in Shakespeare, are the archetypes. And, you know, you read Giordano Bruno, where do the archetypes come from? Whether the shadows of the world, they're celestial, they're the reflections of the world's soul. You know, where, where, where are the Shakespeare's plays put on? The theater of the world, the globe theater. Um, and then you get into the architecture of that. Who's behind that? Well, it's Robert Flood, John D. It's Vitruvian. It's the overlaying of squares and circles, which is direct, which is designed to link the microcosm with the macrocosm. Uh, it's all very hermetic. It's very, all very occult. And, um, yeah, I mean, the world of Shakespeare Marlowe, um, you're definitely getting into this, you know, really deep world of, you know, the occult, the Rosicrucians, um, John D, all that good stuff. Wow. Yeah. I've done some episodes actually on that particular topic. It is, it is fascinating. So I want to circle back to the Kubrick for a moment, though, and Eyes Wide Shut, and a film that was actually released. Are there any rumors of footage that was filmed for that movie that was not released? 
yeah, it's a very, it's a very good question. Um, it's a very good question, Gary. I've, I've heard that. I've heard rumors that there are deleted scenes um, that Warner Brothers has that they have not put out um, for whatever reason. I, I can't. I'm not going to come onto your show and, and swear to this. This is just rumors that I've heard. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have never heard specifically what these scenes entail. I'd be speculating on that, so I'm not going to do that. Um, all that, all that being said, notwithstanding, I mean, if you watch the movie as it stands, you know, today um, in 2022, I mean, it is, you know, it, it, it really is one of the prime examples of an Illuminati movie. I mean, if you ask me, if you ask me to identify a movie that is, you know, an Illuminati film, Eyes Wide Shut would be at the top of my list um, without question. I mean, you know, it, it, I mean, I mean, for from an Illuminati standpoint, you know, that's the movie I would point to, um, you know, uh, you know, to watch. Um, but again, you're, you're right. I have heard rumors that there are deleted scenes, but I, I couldn't I couldn't come on and swear to that. Mm-hmm. And I certainly couldn't come on and tell you um, what the scenes were about. So you have no information on what those scenes may have contained? No, I mean, I, I do not. Um, I, there is a book I have here that was put out by Oxford University Press that is about the making of the movie. I'd probably have to circle back, like you just said, and take a look at it. There might be some information in there about the deleted scenes. Um, I could certainly do that. Um, the, the one thing that's interesting that I, I, I talk about in the in, in the um, in the one book, I think it's Cinema Symbolism Two, was I, I mean I guess it's more of a coincidence, but it's kind of curious. Is is the the mask um, that Tom Cruise wears in the movie? Um, this was rumored to be Ryan O'Neill from Barry Lyndon. It is not. It is actually the, the face that Tom Cruise wears is his own. Um, it's a mask of Tom Cruise. Um, there's actually pictures of it um, and, him being, and, and, and illustrations, uh, diagrams of Cruise being measured for it in the book. Um, and what does kind of make it a little interesting, I mean, I wouldn't say it's a conspiracy, but it's the second time in two years that Cruz wore, was in a movie wearing a mask of himself. Um, Eyes Wide Shut was the first one in 1999. And then two years later in 2001 in Vanilla Sky, um, he also wears a mask of himself. Just more of a curious side note. That is odd. Um, so I want to ask you a speculative question about that movie. Do you think that there's any chance that the, the scenes that were not included in it um, – had anything to do with cannibalizing children? Uh, it's, it's, I mean, is it possible? Yes. I mean, anything's possible. Is it probable? Uh, I'd say probably not. Um, you know, I, I, I would, I would say, I would say probably no that, I mean, you know, I, I, I just don't, there's nothing in that movie that leads me to that, um, direction. Is it possible? Yes. Is it probable? No. I mean, I'd say probably not. And again, I'd be purely speculating on that. Yeah, you know, because that's like one of the big, big uh, conspiracies about Hollywood. Well, there, there is a movie. Um, um, there is a movie that depicts cannibalizing ch- a child, uh, Point Blank, um, and it's the movie with Jennifer Lawrence and Javier Bardem uh, called Mother, um, where the Christ is born and um, the child is cannibalized. And it is a disgusting mockery of the Eucharist. Um, Darren Aronofsky, who made Mother, hates Christianity. Uh, this is no secret. He has openly said so. Um, and he, you know, wants to mock it. In, and he does in Mother. Um, and if you wish to see this, and it's not it's not in any director's cut. I mean, if you watch the movie as it's released, um, I mean, it's clear, clear, clear as 
the day. Um, so, you know, it, it does turn up from there. But of course, Aronofsky's uh, motivation um, in doing this in, in Mother, um, which is a movie I think came out about four or five years ago now, in 17, I want to say. Um, and again, it's a movie with Jennifer Lawrence. You can get it. You can get it on DVD or Blu-ray. Um, you will see the cannibalizing of a child. But again, this is to disparage Christianity. Um, it has nothing to do with some sort of secret society or, you know, human sacrifice or anything like that. It's, it's, it's to mock the Eucharist. Hmm. Is there two separate schools of thought going on in Hollywood, one that is pro-Christian and one that is not? Um, I don't know if there's two two schools of thought. Or, I mean, or anything like that. I mean, this is this is one of the things that I'm always pointing out to people. Say, oh, well, Hollywood's completely demonic. You know, puts out you know evil movies and stuff. Well, they do. I mean, they they do do that. Um, but they put out a lot of religious movies also that can be very uplifting. Uh, movies that have happy ending. I mean, Hollywood put out The Passion of the Christ, The Ten Commandments. Um, you know, I mean, there there are there are loads of movies that have Christian allegories in them. Loads of them. Um, for instance, I mean, just a couple off the top of my head. Um, I mean, we have the Green Mile, uh, which was based on the novel by Stephen King. The character of John Coffey, played by Michael uh, Clunk Dark, was it Michael Clark Duncan or Michael Duncan Clark, who recently, or not recently, yeah, he passed, passed away. away. Right. Um, he's Jesus. Um, I mean, he can heal the sick. He resurrects the little dead mouse. His name, John Coffey, J.C., Jesus Christ. And, of course, dies for the sins of the racist South. Um, Twelve Monkeys, uh, Jesus Christ, James Cole, J.C., comes back in time to save humanity um, and assisted by the Mary Magdalene figure, Dr. Raleigh. Um, another one is, of course, The Day the Earth Stood Still, where um, Klaatu uh, comes down from Earth to save humanity from its recklessness. And of course, he goes by the name of John Carpenter. Jesus was a carpenter, John Carpenter, J.C., Jesus Christ again. Uh, so, you know, you will find a lot of Christian allegory. I mean, in one of the books in Cinema Symbolism, too, I get into the Spaghetti Western movies um, of Sergio Leone, who was a Roman Catholic. I mean, those are overloaded with Roman Catholic um, and Christian, you know, metaphors and, and allusions. Uh, the, move, the works of Martin Scorsese, uh, specifically um, uh, the, the one with Daniel Day-Lewis, uh, The Gangs of New York. Um, again, a Christian allegory that's overloaded with Roman, you know, Catholic themes, Christian themes. Um, so, you know, H Hollywood, I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is if it turns a buck, um, Hollywood will use it. Um, and of course, you, you, you run into a paradox with this, especially when you're dealing with, you know, Gnostic cinema, which is a very popular theme in Hollywood, which, of course, the one of the main tenets of, of Gnosticism is the rejection of materiality, um, the rejection of materialism. But of course, you know, what's a movie like Fight Club or The Matrix or, you know, Vanilla Sky ultimately designed to do? I mean, turn money, make money. Um, so you do run into this paradox with this. Uh, my experience with analyzing films, I mean, they, they, they go to so many different doctrines and, and, and draw from so many different, um, you know, areas of interest and the occult and hermeticism and, and other movies, by the way. Um, you know, any movie that is a landmark movie in Hollywood, specifically movies like The Wizard of Oz, um, the, 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 you know, that's a movie that is constantly referenced. I, I, I mean, I think I read somewhere on this that um, in pop culture and media, just just on news outlets and movies, um, you know, The Wizard of Oz is referenced like 50 times a day in the United States, just on like news networks, just on a passing comment or someone saying, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore. Um, you know, there are like 50 illusions a day. 
you know, in, in mainstream televised pop culture to The Wizard of Oz. I mean, so it just goes to show you how um, dominant and, you know, pervasive it is. Hmm. I didn't know that. Um, what about, like, the works of Roman Polanski? I mean, that was certainly come across as maybe anti-Christian. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you and, know, and plus, again, plus he influenced Charles Manson. Yeah, I mean, I mean the the you know I, I'm a fan of Polanski. I think his movies are great. Um, I'm a huge fan of Rosemary's Baby, and I love The Ninth Gate. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, you're dealing with you know the occult, um, black magic, devil worship, of course. Um, you know, and again, this is another area that you know Hollywood draws from. To be fair about it. Um, Rosemary's Baby was a novella or a novel by Ira Levin um, that Polanski made into a movie. Um, it was originally uh, the, the rights were acquired. The guy who wanted to make it to a movie of all things was William Castle. Uh, and if you don't know who he is, he made a series of movies in the late 50s. There were always these gimmicky movies uh, like House on Haunted Hill, The Tingler, Mr. Sardonicus. They always had this, this strange gimmick with it. And Castle wound up producing the film. Uh, the filmmakers at Paramount didn't want him to make it because they, they thought he turned into a gimmick movie. Uh, and and but 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 he does have a cameo in it. Uh, if if you watch Rosemary's Baby, when Rosemary Woodhouse towards the end is in the phone booth, mm -hmm. um, the guy standing outside the 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 phone booth smoking the cigar is William Castle. Mm -hmm. uh, he he produced it. Um, but no, Polanski Polanski's great. I mean, I love his I love his stuff. Uh, I mean, The Ninth Gate with Johnny Depp is overloaded with all sorts of tarot and yeah. Rosicrucian allegory and. Uh, occult symbolism with Lucifer and, uh, you know, art of memory mnemonics. Um, Rosemary's ba baby, very demonic. Uh, I mean, a, a, a lot of sy weird synchronicity going on with that, with, like you said, Charles Manson and the Dakota and John Lennon's death and just some very strange stuff. I got in, I get into that in, uh, one of the books. I think it was cinema symbolism too. So yeah, um, very interesting, very interesting to say the least. I'm, I'm a big fan of Polanski. How much do you think cinema influences real life? You know, like, like just talking about this, you know, you know, talking about Polanski and how it influenced, you know, Manson and other murders or um, how um, the taxi cab driver sure. influenced um, the guy who shot Reagan. I forgot his name, but. Right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, pop culture can be. Yeah, they, it was Hinckley. Um was it Mark David Chapman? One shot Reagan and one shot Lennon. Um, but both were obsessed with the book, The Catcher in the Rye, by the way, which is often considered to be some sort of, thought to be some sort of Manchurian candidate uh, tr trigger device um, um, for those two. But no, uh, yeah, absolutely. Pop culture can be a, a huge influence. Um, you know, look at Star Trek. I mean, you know, with the flip phone, um, you know, the little communicating device. Many people have... Um, seen a movie and have been inspired, uh, you know, to, to, to do stuff. Um, I mean, I, I look at, you know, even for me, I mean, I remember watching the movies of Ed Wood and thinking, you know, here's a guy who did this all by himself, you know, mm -hmm. who made these movies, produced them, you know, did this all by himself. No one helped him. And, you know, if he can do it, I can do it. I can write books. I can do this myself. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, movies, pop culture, Absolutely can be very influential. I mean, you know, I mean, where, where do you want to start? I mean, you, I mean, it's, it goes both ways. Um, you know, pop culture can influence um, artists, you know, and, and it can influence decision makers. I mean, you look at I mean, look at Led Zeppelin, uh, you know, J.R. Tolkien mm -hmm. is referenced in a couple of their songs. Aleister Crowley, Carl Jung are on the cover of Sgt. Pepper. Um, yeah, I mean, this this material, pop culture, history, the occult, hermeticism. 
um, all very influential. That's, uh, I mean, that's irrefutable. I mean, and again, this was one of my motivations uh, for, for, for writing my book, especially, you know, the Royal Arch and from the Royal Arch, it went into the movie books was just to show or demonstrate to the reader. I mean, how much the occult, the, the world of hermeticism, you know, influenced mm-hmm. literature, pop culture, movies, writing, um, you know, our world, our mundane reality, you name it. So you, you mentioned like the cover of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and, you know, Crawley and Young being in the cover. Um, have you ever done any research into um, the occult and heavy metal music? I, I've, I've looked at it. I've looked at it um, on a limited aspect. Um, I mean, you will definitely find the fingerprints of Aleister Crowley all over the place. Um, he's a guy that, you know, a lot, a lot of rock and rollers like to turn to within the music industry. Absolutely. I mean, you will definitely find a heavy, a heavy taint of occultism. Some of it is very hard to explain. Um, one of the things I talk about in, in my books is, um, the nexus between G, uh, uh, Jesus Christ, excuse me, uh, between, uh, the sun and Elvis Presley. Um, and, and, and the idea of Elvis being a new world Apollo, you know, who was also the god of music. He all, you know, he personifies the sun, but he's also the god of music. And, and the nexus between Apollo and Elvis and the sun is quite astounding. Um, but no, I mean, you get Aleister Crowley references all over the place in Led Zeppelin, uh, the Beatles, you know, you know, you know, I mean, Sergeant Pepper was always thought to be Aleister Crowley. It was 20 years ago today. Um, Aleister Crowley died in 1947, teaching the band to play. Uh, 20 years later, 1967 was when Sgt. Pepper was released. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, heavy metal music, my goodness gracious. I mean, you, you know, Mr. Crowley by, you know, Ozzy Osbourne, um, Black Sabbath. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, heavy metal is, you know, you know, is somewhat easy to find. But, um, yeah, I mean, Led Zeppelin, the Beatles, Rolling Stones, um, you know, you'll find uh, the occult all over the place. So, you know, yeah, that's one thing interesting, you know, because music, film, art, I, I mean, they're all combined, really. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we look at them sometimes as separate, but you cannot make a film without those other elements of, of art, music, mythology, um, you know, the cinematics, which could be almost like, like painting. Absolutely. You, you, no, you, you are, you are 100% correct, Gary. I mean, and this is one thing that I'm always constantly stressing when I do podcasts um, or radio shows such as this one. Uh, there's a couple of things. One is the, inf- the, the use of hidden symbols, icons, the occult hermeticism is, per- is all over the place. It's, it's not limited to movies. You'll find it in TV shows. You'll find it in movies, the world of music. You'll find it in artwork. You'll find it in literature. You know, we talk about Marlowe. We talk about Shakespeare. You'll find it in the works of Edgar Allan Poe, Herman Melville, Emily Dickinson, um, uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, Richard Wagner, Jared Tolkien, C.S. Lewis. I mean, you know, you know, you will find hidden allegories in all this, in all this stuff. And yeah, I mean, absolutely. You could turn to the world. I mean, you know, when it comes to movies, I'm, I'm going to go back to something in a minute, but no, you're absolutely correct. I mean, I get on shows and I talk about symbolism and things like that in movies. I mean, the music that is playing can have an occult meaning. The costumes that are being worn can have an occult meaning. The actor or actress appearing in the film 
can be uh, uh, related to the occult, meant to conjure something in your subconscious mind. So it's a it's a, it's a it's a very broad palette that these filmmakers paint with. Um, but you're absolutely correct. I mean, you turn to the works of you know someone like you know uh, uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Um, his works are completely Neoplatonic. Um, they are Christian, but they are veiling pagan allegory. Um, and again, this is no conspiracy theory. This mm-hmm. isn't me just talking, talking out my, you know what? There's a book out there. It's very scholarly by a man named Edgar Wind, and it is called The Pagan Mysteries of the Renaissance. And he will show you beyond question that these artists in the Renaissance, whether it be Michelangelo, Botticelli, Da Vinci, Raphael, were all using Pico della Mandarola, the writer, Marcello Ficino, were all using astrology, the occult, Hermeticism, the teachings of Hermes Trismegistus, applying it in their artwork and their writing. Um, and again, it's not a conspiracy theory. And like I said, this guy is as mainstream as you get. I mean, I think he's a professor at like Columbia University or something. Mm. And, you know, he will show you, you know, I mean, he goes through pieces of artwork. I mean, he'll say, you know, when the head is tilted this way, it means that. When the person's looking to the left, it means this. When the three muses are doing this, they mean that. I mean, all these guys knew about it. All these guys incorporated. Um, and you'll find it in, in the artwork. You'll find it in music. You'll find it in movies. You'll find it in architecture. You know, the alignments to the stars, the constellations, um, the ley lines. Again, not a conspiracy theory. This comes out of the work of Vitruvius, one of the most famous architects who ever lived. I mean, you read his 10 books. You know, what does a, what does a architect need to be able to do? He needs to be able to know astrology, astronomy. All his buildings must be aligned to the stars to draw down the sympathies, um, from the astral bodies. Um, again, not a conspiracy. I mean, it's, it's, you know, all part of this hermetic tradition that all these guys are expert in. You'll have to send me, um, if you can, after the show, send me a link to that guy's book from Columbia University. I'll see if I can hit him up to be a guest. Here. Oh, I think he's dead. Um, oh, he's dead. Oh, oh yeah. The book a, is, that might be no. an issue. <laughs> Hang on. I, I, the book is right here. Just give me one sec. The, uh, the book is called The Pagan Mysteries in the Renaissance. It's by Edgar Wind. Um, it is available on Amazon. And let me see if there's a brief biography of him in here. Uh, he was a chair of history at Oxford University. So may, as mainstream as you can get. And his name is Edgar Wind. Edgar, oh, yeah. as it sounds, Wind, W-I-N-D. He died in 1971. That's it. Hmm. Interesting. Um, how about you personally? Like, what sure. do you believe personally? Like, do you ascribe more to a Gnostic point of view? Because I, I know yourself, you consider yourself more of a, of a philosopher. So, so which type of philosophy do you personally ascribe to? Like, which yeah, one it, fits you the best? Yeah, I mean, I definitely believe in a supreme being. Um, I definitely would define myself as a deist. I'm certainly not an atheist. I do believe in a supreme being. Um, I do believe that the the Abrahamic faiths are are can be revelations. Um, I, I have I take issue issue with some of it. Some of it I agree with. Um, I, you know, it's a great question. I've never held myself out as a Gnostic, but probably my, my, my own beliefs probably are more in alignment with Gnosticism than anything else. Um, and Kabbalah, mm-hmm. um, that, that, that would be, I would probably say, um, 
and 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 like I said, the reason I don't dis- disband or, or discourage or I'm against the Abrahamic faiths, I like what they have to say. I just I just put a little bit of a different twist on them. I mean, for example, um, I've always found that the Gnostic Christ, uh, the Gnostic interpretation of Jesus, um, was much more interesting than the Orthodox uh, version of Jesus. Um, so I guess at the end of the day, I would hold myself out as sort of a Gnostic deist um, and a Kabbalist. Um, that's probably what um, I, I would hold myself out as. And the reason I would say as a Kabbalist, because um, Kubala um, is present in all the Abrahamic faiths. And that can't be a coincidence. Um, you'll find it in Islam. You'll find it in Christianity. And of course, you'll find it in Judaism. But it's always the secret doctrine. Um, it's always kind of kept away from the, the you know, from the, you know, well, let's be honest, from what Vol- Albert Pike would describe as the vulgar masses. Um, you know, it's for the, the study of this was related, was, was reserved for the adepts. And um, you do find it in all three of the Abrahamic faiths, although it's not really part of the orthodoxy, but it is there. Um, so, so to answer your question, I, I would probably, I guess the easiest way to describe myself would be um, sort of a Gnostic deist um, and a Kabbalist. Hmm. Interesting. Um, as a, a Kabbalist, uh, you know, one of the things that, that the Kabbalah does is it leaves a lot of room for interpretation to what the creating deity is. It doesn't actually define it. It just, it's like, it exists. So when you try to define that deity, do you look at it more as something that thinks in terms of like a human being, a microcosm, macrocosm type of thing? Or do you think of it more as a pure consciousness that's beyond duality? Well, the, the, the issue is, 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 is difficult because um, – if, if you, in, in really the occult Gnostic Kabbalist tradition, there are two gods. Um, there's not one, there's two. There is the demiurgic creator who is the creator figure, who is the guy who creates the heavens and the earth. Um, this is what in, 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 in Plato, in, you know, Platonism is known as the demiurge. Um, this is sort of the lesser god. This is what is known as Yahweh or Allah or mm-hmm. Jehovah. Um, and then you have the superior God, um, sort of the hidden God, um, that is spiritual. The, the, the demiurgic creator is much more interested in materialism, um, and is, is, is more of a misfit. Um, and then you have the spiritual God, which is much more transcendent and much more interested in spiritual consciousness. Would that be um, like the Ain Sof Ur? Yes, correct. This would be what the Neoplatonists called the one. What the Kabbalists call Ain Sof, what the Gnostics call the Monad, um, and again, this is pure speculation. This is pure pure, pure theology, um, and you know, what one of, you know, you know. So you have the creator figure, then you've got this, you know, other more spiritual God. One one of the arguments for this is, um, is is the Bible itself is the two testaments. Um, there was a, a pagan philosopher named Marikon who lived in the very early days of Christianity and. 
he read, he said, if you read the Old Testament, he said, and you read the New Testament, he said, he said, these books are describing two different gods. He said that they're not only are these gods different, they're polar opposites of one another. The God of the Old Testament is wrathful, vengeful, wants humans to make sacrifices, murder mm-hmm. children, kill the Egyptians, uh, wants to kill humankind with a flood. Um, you know, this is more akin to what the Gnostics called the demiurgic creator. But then you get into the New Testament where you have the God of Jesus. Um, and this ties into what, what Valentinus said, where the God, God wants us to love everybody and be peaceful. And, and this God obviously runs contrary to what the God of the Old Testament is, who wants, you know, everybody dead, essentially. Um, so what, what the Gnostics sort of postulated was, well, the God that Jesus is talking about is this Ain Sof monad God and the God that the, of the Old Testament is, is, you know, the demiurge. It's, it's two separate gods. Of course, this never went over well with the church fathers, and 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 they said, no, 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 the the God of the Old Testament is the same as as the God of Jesus Christ. Um, and then the, then then the church fathers had to go further and say, well, okay, um, if this is the case, then Kabbalah, if we're going to go down that route, then the the, the then the Kabbalah of the of the Jews is what you know is what Jesus is talking about with these celestial hierarchies. It's the same thing. Um, and then you get into Islam with the dignities of God, um, you know, put forth by Raymond Lully, the Islamic mystic. So you have this overlap um, with with all three of these. Um, so at any rate, um, in, in, in really the Kabbalistic Gnostic doctrine, you have these two deities, not one. So with all this in mind, everything that we've talked about um, in film. Or do you incorporate this Gnosticism, you know, the religious religion, the um, mythologies, all these things that are age-old parts of, of us, of who we are, of probably like what's even stored in our DNA, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and it's dating back to the, to the earliest, some of the earliest works of art using these archetypes to stir something in a human being to, to motivate them or to inspire them is still being used today in modern film. Um, do you think this is something that will just continue to the end of time until we no longer exist? Well, yeah, I, I would think so. Um, I mean, I have no reason to believe it won't stop existing. I'll put it to you like that. I mean, and certainly when you're dealing with Gnostic doctrine, I mean, this is one of the most popular subjects in Hollywood. Um, Gnosticism abounds in Hollywood. And I believe someone asked me, I, I was on another show and said, well, why is that? Um, you know, what, why is that? Why is there this, you know, fascination with Gnosticism, specifically Valentinian Gnosticism? That's the main strain that, um, seems to really pique a lot of people's interests. Um, and, and, and the reason for that is because it's the idea of the human being, you know, who, who transcends, um, you know, who, who, you know, who transcends mythology or becomes the mythological big figure. Um, the human being um, who, who is a nobody one day and then all of a sudden is on this ethic, you know, or excuse me, mystic, not ethic, mystic uh, quest, um, to save the world, uh, you know, and it's something we all, I think, subconsciously aspire to. 
you know, whether we call this character, I mean, I wouldn't call the movies necessarily Valentini and Gnostic, but it's like, it's like Neil Anderson in the matrix or John Murdoch. I mean, who are the, the, these nobodies one day. Um, and the next day they're essentially these Jesus Christ like illuminators, um, trying to, you know, uh, bring consciousness to humankind. I think, I think that's very appealing. I, th- I think that, I think that's very appealing to most people. You know, hey, if these guys can do it, I can do it. You know, mm-hmm. you know, what's my purpose in the world? You know, and, and, and maybe I can do something like this. I, I think I think that I think that really strikes a chord um, on a subconscious level um, and a conscious level. I, I like I said, I, th- I think that's very appealing, and I think that's one of the reasons why Hollywood likes to dabble dabble. You know, in, in, you know, with Gnosticism so much. Uh, not that every movie is Gnostic, but um, you know, like I said, it is it, it is a popular. Uh, heresy in Tinseltown. So, yeah, I mean, I, I have um, no reason to believe at all. I mean, like I said, if you go back in time, you will find these occult, Gnostic, Hermetic themes, you know, like I said, in the works of the 19th century, you know, American writers, Mozart, Wagner, Shakespeare, Marlowe. Um, it predates Hollywood. We find it in Hollywood. So I, I, I have no reason to believe that it will stop anytime soon. Do you think that these stories and these beliefs, these mythologies are encoded in human DNA or in of our course. subconscious mind or even of, in of a course. superconscious mind, like coming from God itself? Well, that, that, that you, you just struck it right is, is, is if you read the Renaissance masters, see the, the, the thing is it really goes the, the, the person who you need to read on this. And when I say you, I'm talking about the audience, not you personally was Carl Jung. The Renaissance guys like Giordano Bruno, Pico, Marcello Ficino, um, specifically Bruno, they talk about this, but the problem is they didn't have the advent of modern psychology. Um, when they talk about the archetypes, the, what they are constantly used, the, the terminology you're constantly reading is shadows from the world soul, Sh- you know, you know, shadows from the universe, shadows from the world soul. And if you read Bruno, he, all the archetypes, and he's correct, he said, come from the heavens. Um, every story, every archetype, um, is based upon the human's observation of the heavens above and the interaction with the different planets, the zodiacs, the constellation, the sun, the moon, passing into each other and passing in and out of the different constellations, the zodiacs, and the interactions. I mean, this is the basis for all mythology. Jupiter, Mercury, the divine messenger who whizzes around the sun, dispensing knowledge, the beauty goddess, Venus. Um, you know, Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack is the sun. Jill is the moon. The hill that they're going up is the arch from the vernal equinox to the summer solstice where they encounter Aquarius, the pail of water. Then they all come tumbling down to the autumn equinox. Every nursery rhyme, fairy tale, religion comes from the movement of the stars and the sun and the moon. Jesus is the sun. You know, Moses is the sun and moon. Um, you know, the 12 apostles are the 12 houses of the Zodiac. The 12 tribes of Israel are the 12 houses of the Zodiac. You know, it, it all relates back to the stars and the moon. And since the, and, and what, 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 what Bruno said was, well, since all, you know, it, it, it's divine. Um, this is all encoded in us. Um, this is all part of our being, our makeup. Um, and since the archetypes come from the heavens above, it's a form of divinity because the stars, the moon, the planets are gods themselves, or at the very least, closer to God. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is all something that's encoded in our DNA, all part of our subconscious mind. 
Um, and what Jung talks about, it's the collective unconscious, the archetypes um, that arise therein from the uh, celestial bodies above. Hmm. I didn't know Bruno said all that. Like, I know that Bruno was sort of like uh, the predecessor to Galileo. Like, he was one of the first people, I believe, who, who came up with this idea that, you know, the Earth was orbiting the sun and not the center of the universe. Yeah, well, that's really Copernicus and Kepler and Galileo. Bruno accepted it. Um, But Bruno accepted it because um, he understood that that Jesus was a personification of the sun. So that only made sense. When the sun is identified as the center of the galaxy, that, of course, gives credence to sun worship, um, which is, of course, what all these religions are, is the worship of the heavenly bodies and the assignment of human personalities to the sun, the moon, the constellation and the stars. Um, you know, that, that's what this all goes back to. So, yeah, like then that just means, you know, reinforces the, you know, that everything is interconnected and intertwined and we're just a part of, of nature. And so are these stories. In of the course. I, I, yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. And we see them. I mean, we see them over and over and over again. Um, you know, you know, Jesus dies and is resurrected and ultimately goes on to defeat, you know, some dark evil overlord. I mean, we see that in the Matrix. Harry Potter, you know, the savior of the wizarding world, dies and is resurrected to defeat some dark overlord. Um, you know, Frodo Baggins, some nobody picked from Middle Earth, from Hobbiton to go defeat some sort of, you know, dark evil overlord. Luke Skywalker, Luke, meaning Lux, the sun. What you know, the light, you know, what light walks across the sky every day, the sun going to do battle with, you know, some dark evil overlord, Darth Vader. Um, you know, Jesus is the sun, the resurrected savior. What's he do? He defeats works of darkness or the nighttime side, you know, the, the nighttime sky when he's resurrected every morning. Um, it's all the same thing. It is all the exact same thing. Um, you'll find it, it's, you know, it's the basis of Neoplatonism, you know, all, all, all the, Pagan, all the pagan characters, you know, based on the, you know, the, the planets and the stars, you know, turn up in Christianity and the Abrahamic faiths and vice versa. Um, you know, you know, I mean, this is what you'll find in the paintings of Da Vinci. Look at, uh, St. John the Baptist. Uh, you know, it's a woman. You know, of, of course, John the Baptist is Hermes. You know, this is why he paints him as the woman. It's a hermaphrodite. Um, you know, John the Baptist and Hermes are one and the same person. It's the divine messenger. Um, you know, Jesus in the, in the, in the Last Supper painting, Jesus is the sun, is the sun at the center of the table, surrounded by the four groups of three, um, the 12 houses of the zodiac, the three months that encompass every, uh, you know, the, the four months, the three months in, in the four seasons. Um, it's all Neoplatonism. It's all, uh, paganism and it's all coming from the heavens above and it's all archetypal. Hmm. So essentially, do you think that we are all meant to be heroes of our own story? Well, I, I, th- I think that's really the Gnostic uh, moral to the story. And, and, you know, this is one, when, when I, when I, uh, when, when I go on, uh, if there's another podcast that I'm, 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 I'm a frequent guest on, uh, called Aeon Bite, um, hosted by a friend of mine named Miguel Connor. And he is constantly saying, uh, you know, be, be, be your own hero, be your own hero and write your own gospel and gospel. Um, you know, and I think that's really the moral of the story is, is be your own hero, be yourself, know thyself and write your own gospel gospel. I think that's the uh, true moral to the story with all this. I agree completely. And I think on this note, this is the perfect place to kind of wrap it up. Um, but before we do, where's the sure. best place for my listeners to find you and find your books? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, for starters, let me say thank you, Gary, for having me on Everything Imaginable. It was my pleasant, uh, my pleasure to be here for a second time. And again, we'll do this again. Absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, my 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 website. The easiest place to find me is my website, which is my name. Uh, my name is Robert W. Sullivan the Fourth, and my website is just that. It's Robert W. Sullivan. IV, the Roman numeral, you know, the, the lowercase I, the lowercase V for the fourth, Robert W. Sullivan, IV.com. Uh, there are links there to purchase the books. Um, I have five books out. They're in print edition or the Kindle or the ebook. Uh, they are available on all the major online retail sellers, Amazon, Barnes and Noble Books, a million. And again, you can get um, either one, uh, the ebook or the print edition. Um, the website is very informative, it is routinely updated. Um, there's information about me, information about upcoming shows that I'm going to be on or have been on. Uh, there is a blog, which is, again, frequently updated, um, information about me. Again, check it out. It's Robert W. Sullivan, Sullivan with two L's, IV.com, Robert W. Sullivan, IV.com. Links there to buy the book. It's a very easy page to navigate. Awesome. And I'll put the links to your website. In the notes of this episode, I'll also put links to your books in the notes of this episode so my listeners can check you out. It was a pleasure having you on and talking with you today. We'll have to do this again sometime. Absolutely, Gary. And again, thank you for having me on. It was my pleasure to be here. All right. Awesome. Just hang on for one moment and I'm going to play sure. the outro.